listening to a discussion born in the Christian ghetto. There we go. My mic is on. Excellent. At least I hope. Yes, it looks like I'm talking now. Very good. We're just waiting for a few people to show up. I am going to put the article in question into the into the comments so those that haven't read it can do so at their leisure we're just waiting for hopefully a couple people to show up um, where is it here please bear with me and be patient as we get this thing going There's the piece, copy, and now let's open it up, and I'm going to put on, okay, let's see here, all right, I'm going to drop this post, there's the So this was the article in question that caused Oren to reach out and invite me, ask me if I wanted to be on a show, which, of course, who would turn that down? And let's see who else is coming in. I'm waiting for someone in, hopefully Black Horse, he said he would be putting the kids to bed and be here around 10. And... Um, I expect that that should be the case. Anyways, um, so we get into Elul, and um, one of the things that we talked about, and Oren talked about, sort of, you know, you know, why Elul? What makes Elul important for understanding the administrative state as opposed to, say, a Burnham or Francis and, you know, what makes Alul unique in this regard and, you know, do you really need to read him? And one of the things that Alul does is he gives you, as we said on Oren's stream, what Alul does is he gives you the, in some ways, the source code for much of what we see in modernity. Um, so many things grew up together and we arrive at the present moment and many of the things that we see seem like you know corruptions of something else um, but a lot of what we see today are really outworkings of a few basic ideas and one of those very powerful ideas, at least at the time it was very compelling, is this idea of human progress. 
and uh, and this is in many ways the essential uh, you know liberal idea. So we we come back in terms of liberal ideas down to to core myths. And the reason why you get back at core myths is because these myths drive a whole lot of other things. And so with the, the breakup of the Catholic and the Protestant churches, driven in part by the merchant classes who in many ways were chafing under um, the authority of the church, but also under the authority of the noble classes. So they wanted basically the freedom to make money. And there were a number of ancillary pieces. One of that is knowledge and learning, and the other is um, science and technology. And so you put rationalization, so this knowledge and learning piece, together with scientific learning and technology, together with um, making money or the desire to make money, the merchant classes. Oh, there's Black Horse. All right, I'm going to... Um, invite to speak, and I will invite to co-host. There we go. Excellent. All right. I think did um, did the invite come, Black Horse? I will find out soon, I guess. As I was saying, we'll kind of continue on for now. So what you end up with then with these kind of three pieces is um, a collection of myths uh, that, that sort of build up. One of the myth is sort of the myth of what we might call history or progress. Um, the other is the myth of, believe it or not, work. We take for granted, you know, this whole idea of the Protestant work ethic. We take the idea of work for granted. But one of the things that Alul um, works through in the technological society is that up until the modern era, um, work was not seen as kind of redemptive the way that we do. That, you know, you find basically you worked as hard as you needed to. And if you weren't, if you didn't need to work, you didn't work. And it wasn't that people were lazy. It's just that there were other things that concerned them. Um, so then there was also the cult of youth. Um, there's the pursuit of science and knowledge. Um, but the big piece was the belief in history and progress. So there was this belief together that by um, applying yourself to knowledge, science, technique, technology, um, and to organization in and around the trading of goods and the merchant classes, um, you know, making, uh, you know, making things, selling things, um, that uh, all of this together would lead society to better and better and better places all the time, that we as human beings were progressing. And it was, you know, the, the early 1700s was a very optimistic time. And so people grappled onto this and it was hard not hard to see why in uh, it was a time of great social plasticity after the end of the the reformation and the religious wars people were tired of this they were looking for other things and they were looking to throw off the the church in many ways had earned a lot of the the scorn that it was facing and so people threw this off and they began to embrace these things um, you know then you get the lead up to the french and the american revolutions 
and well, yeah. It, so, I mean, there, there, Alul, Alul makes like a dozen plus of these claims, but there's a meta claim that sits underneath sure. them, and that's the belief in the iterative reinvestment in cycle as the fundamental property, as, as like the as the superordinate pursuit, right? So in every one of these areas, what he's talking about, uh, when he's talking about the application of technique being inherently progressive, inherently universalizing, uh, about the fact that if you take the process and apply it through iterations, the ultimate no matter what the start you begin with. Well, and that's in a sense and so, the and that's in a sense the scientific principle, right? So you know, you you develop a theory, a postulate, you develop an experiment to test it, then you test it. Your hypothesis is proven correct or incorrect, and at which point you modify the experiment, and then you know you learn things and you continue with this process. And part right. of what they did, and if you run enough iterations, you can... yeah, if you run the theory right that's right and uh, i think alul would conclude that if you run enough iterations of any of these technical systems you will arrive at the inevitable uh end state of the technical system that you began with and that's he right. would argue that the administrative state or even the sort of capitalist um, rise has an has like an inherently utopian will make infinite widgets kind of feel to it. So exactly that inherent utopianism drives and work ethic. Like all items here are actually downstream con consequences of this fundamental claim. And I think that the fundamental claim that the the technical process is utopian universalized and universalizing utopian is is very easy like the the argument is a very straight line universalizing i think relatively straight and but and that's in a sense the technical imperative in many ways like elul makes the argument like the in some ways you know the hope is that the, the the solution will just kind of arrive on its own you don't really worry about the results so much because if there's problems you just go back to the drawing board, figure out what the problems were, and then you you put in the next level of technology, the next level of systems, the the next new thing, and that new thing will fix then some of the problems that you have at this level, right? And the system continues to grow and grow and grow. It gets more and more sophisticated, more and more powerful. Um, and the, the promise is that if you keep going on forever, that eventually you will arrive at, we have managed to manage everything into a state of perfection. And you you see this in our modern day elites. Like they really do still believe this, that, you know, we can still, as you say, iterate ourselves well, into like, into um, perfection. A great a great example of this is the quest to explain human consciousness through <laughs> algorithmic um, through algorithmic as an emergent property of a series of algorithms we don't understand. 
right? And if we could only just kind of work through all the algorithms that operate in our consciousness, then we would fully understand human psychology and we'd be done with it. Um, well, or, or even that the the sense is that because again you you have this belief in the directionality of history, you develop this you know the the whole question of you know well how did we get here if there wasn't a god? So you come up with this story called evolution, and then you 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 explain all of these things. And the, and the one thing that's very very hard to explain is is human consciousness. So the idea is again if you have all of these genetic changes and you iterate them over time that eventually consciousness just emerges. So AI then becomes in some ways the scientific experiment to prove that's right to demonstrate to prove to evolution. that that an emergent property of uh, algorithm algorithms operating on a biological computer right that that's the reason why AI is such a fixation is because if you can create it then you can demonstrate uh, in their worldview conclusively that consciousness is this kind of illusion of meat computers. Yeah, and that if, if we could do it with computers, then we know for certain that, or the, the postulate can be that it's it's highly probable that this is what happened genetically and biologically, right? So we did yeah, it with well, computers, I mean, and, and so this must be what had happened with with biology. Yeah. So that... I think the argument that it's universalizing uh, is you can make wrongly because of the quest to. I mean, the proper Western scientific history has attempted to explain every phenomenon is uh, in a good and seeks a unified theory, good kind of explanation, a good piece of evidence that. His ideas of technique are, are, are see this in the modern state with each iteration of reinvestment attempts to um, accumulate more and more to itself. Right? There's a universalizing prince. Well, and and this become this 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 works across all of culture and society. So this is why you have the quest for globalism. You know, again, like you said, the, the unifying theory in physics between, you know, the quantum and, and Newtonian mechanics. And then there, and, and relativity. Um, but you also see it in, in just the practices for everything. You're looking for always the one single best way to do everything. Right. So this is what Alul calls monism. So they're, they're, you're always on this quest to to find the one the one perfect thing. Um, a, a really good example of this was the covid regime. You know, people you know said, well, it's about curing the virus. And I'm thinking, like, if you read Alul, it's, it's not about you know stopping the virus, curing the virus. It's about developing the system. So this is just simply iteration number one. Right. And so now you have a whole bunch of data and on what worked and didn't work. And they will go back to the drawing board and they're just itching for the next round to come along so that they can um, try, um, you know, the COVID policy 2.0. 
um, and that, and then there'll be COVID policy 3.0, and and this is just kind of the way it works until they are satisfied that they have reached you know the best practices for for COVID management. Um, that's why there's no apologies. There's no um, nobody's held responsible because why would you hold people responsible? We're just hey, we're in the process of developing. It's all you know, results don't matter. It's all about the process. And anytime you hear somebody say, well, you know. We just we've got to have good process, and you're like, um, I'm in, like I constantly now push back on that and say like, no. Um, even if the process is a hot mess, what really matters is that we get the results that we want. Did uh, oh, there we go. Okay, and. Yes, I think Black Black Horse was having some. Um... Yeah, were you having some connection problems? And then I. No, I think it was definitely not intentional. <laughs> so, uh, but before we get to the conclusions here, it's worth taking a minute to sort of dwell in the implications of. So. Let's say for the sake of the space that. Technical oh, mechanism of thinking has as its consequence a utopian and universalizing uh, set of. Durations. Yeah, I think you're cutting. Yeah, you're. you're yeah. Is that better? You're cutting in and out a fair bit, Black Horse. It's, okay. Yeah, so I don't know whether it's your your Wi-Fi or the phone or whatever, but it's just, um, it has been cutting out a bit, so, unfortunately. Maybe this will be, be a bit better. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's okay. Yes, obviously Twitter's spaces need further iterative um, development. I guess to fill in the space then that, um, you know, one of the, the things that we see, and I think where Black Horse was heading with this in some ways, is we have to understand that the system that we have today is not separate from the ideas that gave birth to um, to sort of the, the whole complex of liberal ideas, whether it's, you know, economic liberalism, whether it's political liberalism. And we even talk about it in the classical sense that all of these ideas grew up together, like the, the very idea that you could, say, approach governance of a nation and develop a constitution and then, you know, sort of have a new founding for society is an inherently technical idea, right? But yeah. it's also then part of a belief in this progressive liberal idea at the same time. So the system and all so of its architecture grows at the same time. 
can we can we slow down here? Sure. So, can you hear me better now? Yes, first of all, very much so. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So, like, I think we've established three basic insights. Uh, first, that technical thinking is inherently progressive, inherently utopian, inherently universalizing. Second, that the um, that the the state that the the mechanisms of government in which we're presently operating, um, liberal democracy as an idea, these are in not but not only liberal democracy but also the other mechanism, the other me fundamental mechanisms of our society, things like um, the way that the corporate world is architected or the way that we think about the way that we think about science are inherently technical mechanisms, and we can conclude from that that these institutions as presently constituted have an inherent progressive bias over an infinite number of iterations. Yes, and that's that's absolutely correct. And and this is an insight that Alul also noted, like we because we're on Twitter here. So this is a lot of this yeah. is about messaging, right? So Alul argued that propaganda it always has to align with the core myths of the people that you're dealing with. Right. So if yeah, our core yeah. myths are all progressive, the the messages that are most likely to um, adhere to people and, and to convince people are inherently progressive messaging. And this is why, you know, you, you basically our political parties are all variations of different kinds of, of progressive ideology, um, a truly conservative opinion. Um, really has no purchase because, you know, when you say to people well, like, well, you need to sacrifice, well, you need to, you know what I mean? It just doesn't, it doesn't fly the same way as, um, you know, infinite progress does. Yeah. Well, so you're, you're going to get a couple of questions from the broad public when you make this case. The first question is, okay, so science, technology, governance, the way that corporate corporate entities are organized, these are inherently progressive expressions of technus. What's not an expression of technus to understand the definition by contrast? Okay. Well, so you would look at things that are inherently not iterative, that are inherently not um, perfecting, right? In some so, ways, but or they're they're developed and perfected differently. Right. So they would be things that are organic. They would be things that would be embedded in cultural memory. Um, so they are the kind of things that do in some ways develop over time, but they develop over time in the the. Um, the practices of people within a community, right? So it's the long time right. taboos, the so, long time practice. Like, why do we do this thing this way? Well, this is the way we've always been doing it. Well, why are we always doing it this way? Well, because over time, practice had dictated that this is the best way to do it for our community, and that's the type of thing. Right. It's not abstract. So what you're what you're talking about here is cultural memory, cultural myth, are not technic in in the in Alul's definition, right? Uh, feudal bonds, bonds of family, bonds of uh, loyalty that are generational in nature are not tech, are not technic in in this sense, right? That's correct. That's right. Um, 
And so, uh, and okay, so we've got tradition, mythology, we've got uh, these kind of unchosen deep bonds uh, as our alternative structure. And we have the idea of the craftsman. That's right. uh, Which is rather than a process oriented uh, method of construction, you've got a skill oriented method of construction, the difference between a black, a blacksmith and an industrial forge. Well, and, and you also though have personal action and accountability. So, you know, if I'm put in charge of something, so the king instructs yeah, this me. This is a great point. The king instructs uh, me to manage his affairs on the estate, right? So I do this personally with my own skill and ability. I am directly involved. In it. So if the estate is poorly managed, the king isn't looking to the systems. He's not looking to rejig the policies. I yeah. lose my title and my family's destitute, and I probably lose my head as well too. Right? That's the type of thing. Well, yeah, but uh, like inherently, it's judgment that is the factor that's not. That's right. Personal uh, judgment and ability and skill. And then the, the other element that is kind of touched on there is judgment as an element of justice. Yes. Rather than um, the, the logical conclusion of technical thinking in justice is a perfecting system, which is a system. Uh, which is why you have corrections officers rather than jailers. That's right. And, and it's abstracted, right? So that was the one thing we talked about with Oron is you, is you take, so what, what technique wants to do is it looks at the system. So let's take, for example, the estate of the Lord, right? So you, right now you've got a guy in charge, he's the estate master, and he manages everything by his skill, ability, intention. Some of it is, you know, he was probably apprenticed from other estate managers. So he's picked up sort of the right way to do it from community. So some guy comes in, you know, the time and Taylor's time and motion studies, right? He comes in, he watches how it's done and he looks at it. Then he goes back and he rationalizes, he breaks it all down. What works, what doesn't work. And then he develops a system and a plan that is then separate from the people. And he then presents it back to it and said like okay here's the plan in the system and now no longer is it the ability of the person but the person is now fitting into the system so in a sense the system well, governs it's in a sense the same way the rule of law the rule of system the rule of policy they're right. all they're all basically variations on the same theme but the, this gets to the other key key note on the way through Virtually all historical systems are some combination of technus and non-technical uh, solutions. So if you look at uh, Roman governance as an example, uh, all Roman cities are built, laid out in exactly the same way. Yes. There's technical thinking there. Yes, exactly. Uh, there, there's technical thinking in taxation. There's technical thinking in the way that they do the census. Mm-hmm. There's also... Um, you know, a deep history of non-technical thinking. There, uh, there's personal accountability as the foundational principle of, of government. Of government, right? The governors, the governor governs according to his ju- judgment, not according to any um, governing system, and is judged based on his ability to extract maximum tax revenue from a province. Um, and then there's traditions about what percentage of that he gets to keep versus what has to go to the emperor or whatever. Yes. So most 
most historical governance and systems are some combination of techness uh, and non-technical thinking. Yes, and then a lot of the, the technic, the technique, though, at that time um, is it's less abstracted and more, in a sense, cultural. In it, so they 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 work these things out well, over time. This, this gets to the other fundamental point, though. Yeah. Um, tech, technical thinking, uh, gradual progress because it is progressive and because mm. it is universalizing. Uh, kind of grows like a cancer. Um, yes. So, if you rewound society to 1800 and looked at it, you would find a great deal less technical thinking and a great deal more other forms of uh, of thought. And if you fast forward society from there to 1900, you'll find more progress. You'll find more technical thinking and less personal accountability. You fast forward again and to today you'll find almost no personal accountability and almost only technical thinking. Exactly. Uh, really, the only places you'll find personal accountability are outside the West or in entrepreneurship. That's right, Or in Small places shops. where, yeah, places where uh, so, something has radically changed recently. So like Silicon Valley is a great place. It's a great example of uh, there's technical thinking there, but there's also... Uh, these figures that emerge um, that are fundamentally personally accountable in a way that you know very few fig figures anywhere else in our society are, and they emerge because they create they create a new a new environment that's not technical and it gradually gets conquered by the technocracy. Yes, um, at the same time, it's still inherently technical because what they're dealing with is so they're technological disruptors right but the, and, the and point i'm trying to make cryptos is that there's these are mixed environments yes exactly. whereas, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, whereas like the environment of say the dmv is 100 technical and it's thinking there's no judgment at all oh yeah for sure that's exactly uh, it that's right whereas you have mixed environments at the fringes mm -hmm. uh where where things are changing yes and I, I would argue that if you did a historical study, you would find that disruption uh, is the ingredient that... So you talked about the process of technical thinking gradually subsuming previously personal bonds. Like when you talked about breaking down the feudal estate into a system that is abstracted from, the, from personal bonds. Well, how do you go the other direction is the question. Because if you're in an environment of modernity where technical thinking dominates everything, how do you turn the knob in the other direction? I think the answer to it is fairly obvious. The answer is disruption. Yes, so, you, you unplug in some way. Well, so if you look at Silicon Valley as an example of turning from 100% technical thinking to, I don't know, 95% technical thinking mm -hmm. or 8% technical thinking, what you're, you're looking at is to the extent that a disruption is made to the way that uh, to the landscape of industry, mm -hmm. that disruption reduces the, reduces the proportion of technical thinking and creates an, an opportunity um, to, for, for personal judgment. Right. Yes. So uh, every time a disruption of that kind occurs, 
there's an opportunity for a figure to insert himself. And I would, I would argue that technological disruptions are actually like the least good candidates for this. The Mm -hmm. best candidates for this are like civil disruptions. Yes. So that gets back to the whole thing of revolt. No. So now, Two examples while you were talking come to mind. And one of the things I think that we need to mention, because technique and the system are totalizing, right? The, the desire is always to move up to economies of scale, right? So one of the, the, the cases that we look at is um, Bukele in, um, uh, in Central America. I forget the country. Yeah. Um, and people ask, well, why can't we do that here? Well, that country is a country of six million people. So what happens is then on that smaller scale, a lot of the kind of problems that you have when you have 340 million people um, don't occur. And the size of the U.S. bureaucracy at the federal well, level, and even often guys many times the state level. So he's able to... Yeah, so if you, if you rewind at, at, a meta le- at a meta level, what you're talking about is can... Uh, is at what whether scale has an impact as to whether technical systems or personal or personal bonds are more effective in managing uh, in managing a state. So and this and this would be so if you're looking to say disruption. So the way to disrupt then would be to intentionally move back to. Um, smaller arrangements that would allow you to do things on a personal level, but to do so intentionally, right? Yeah, well, fundamentally to smash uh, the large units and then know that if you reduce the scale at which you're operating, personal bonds um, are much more, are, have a, stand a much better chance against the technical systems uh, at, the, at the reduced scale. So if you were, for example, interested in restructuring the country of Canada uh, and reducing the extent to which it's a technically dominated uh, society, the first thing you would do is you would take all the regional divisions, you would amp them up to 11, and you would attempt to smash the country uh, into constituent elements. Yes, and or... Then, and then the, you would figure that in some of those constituent elements, you might be able to introduce non-technical thinking. Well, that's right. And, but at the same time, again, it comes back to one of the things, I mean, unless, you're, unless you go to the point where, you know, you, the, like the end of modernity, right? And you could do like a 600 years of dark ages where basically technique is largely forgotten, right? You know, short of that type of scenario, you're going to have technique with you, right? So, Somebody right, somewhere is, is going to keep the knowledge. Right? This is what we were, what I was getting at here. Yeah. Almost all systems are mixed systems. So, what the idea, the Alulian idea that you're going to go through a great darkness and expunge techness from the way that things are done? Unlikely. I think it's very unlikely, and not even necessarily a good goal. No. And and that's really where I mean, in the political illusion, he gets at that point, and and really he he comes back to the idea that you really that alternate communities are the way to go, right? That you build a parallel polity and um, that is capable of resisting, he, the way he put it, resisting the rewards 
and the punishments of the regime. Right. It's it's a kind of because he says as soon as you do that meaningfully, the regime will find you and it will want to stamp out that resistance. So you have to be prepared to deal with that. Right. right? But that's that's a, a question for before you get get sovereignty. And I think we all kind of know uh, how to live effectively as a minority under a hostile sovereign. We've all kind of experienced that over the last 15, 20 years. The question is, what do you do? What are you attempting to do when you're attempting to grab sovereignty? Um, and this is the question that's unresolved on the right. And yes. I think Alul's contribution is very valuable in looking at how to resolve it. Because that's exactly Alul's it. argument says that you don't. I mean, Alul would go as far as like smash modernity, uh, eliminate technical thinking. What I would say is that. Actually, there's there's a nice middle ground here where if you disrupt uh, if you disrupt the iterative process badly enough, we could go back to like I don't know 1850 levels of personal accountability in in systems, and you know that worked for a, pretty well for a hundred years. That that that's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Well, here here's a here's the thing though too, because I think it's John Michael Greer and um, Matthew Crawford. Um, yeah. Both both look at it this way, and I tend to like this idea that that there is in this development process out of the embedded organic communal small um, you know non technique use of tools to where we are today, that somewhere along this way, there was an inflection point at which the primary thing was not the skill of human beings um, using tools as the decisive thing to where the tools are in charge of us as human beings, right? So somewhere along the way, there is a level of technology and a, a relationship with technology that allows us still to be the masters. And then as you say, you just sort of, I don't know, it's like stop, but you have to sort of let go of this quote-unquote development, um, growth, um, iterative, um, utopian kind of idea that we're always moving forward, that no, this is is good enough. Well, I I think what you actually have to do is you have to acknowledge that the process is going to go forward, and you have to acknowledge that periodically you're going to have to reset it. And that may be, yeah. And it's going to have to be done... Probably hard. violently every time. Probably violently. Yeah, because, like, because it, as I said to Oren, that, you know, given the fact that we live in a sinful world, if there is techniques that will allow somebody to gain power over other human beings, or if there are techniques that allow them to make money, um, you might be, and, and maybe we get like 90% of the world's communities to restrain themselves. And agree, but there's going to be that one guy who says, like, well, screw it. I can get rich and powerful by using these techniques. I'm going to do it. And then the genie's out of the bottle again. I mean, it's, it's an inevitable process. Yes. And so the, the issue with the inevitable process is that at some point there's a, there's a negative return on continuing the process, but the exactly. logic can't be stopped. Right. And this, is what, John, right this is what John Tainter says too. Is that and and this is one of his like the collapse of complex um, civilizations in his yeah. book is that he says eventually every society reaches a point where the societal inputs um, 
become greater than the outputs. And then eventually right. the whole thing either collapses or it has to be broken into pieces. Um, and, and that's sort of the natural. And that was basically what happened with Rome is that the barbarian invasions just forced the breakup into smaller pieces. And at the time, at, on the ground level, people actually, he argued, you know, welcomed the whole process because they were just suffocating under the Roman Empire at the end. Well, I mean, it, it, whether they welcomed it or not, like, this is the inevitable process of That's history. Right. Uh, uh, the, it, it, if you look at China as a, another example of in, uh, uh, a state that, you know, uh, during the period between about 800 and about 1400, um, well, sorry, more like 400 to about 1200 mm -hmm. uh, before the arrival of Khan. Mm -hmm. um, was like incredibly stultified, accomplished almost nothing for like a several hundred year period because of this in this like just suffocating bureau bureaucratic process that they had wrapped around the the memory of the monarchy. Well, and this is something uh, that Spengler notes as well too. You're basically a, you're sort of a dead thing, just kind of keeping on, keeping on. India had the same problem as well. Yes, and so. Um, there's a reality here that uh, hard resets are very uncomfortable, but they're they're like they're part of a life cycle. It's like how the forest needs to burn down periodically. Um, and the the issue is how do you burn down the forest without without doing permanent damage? Right? You want to do uh, and you want to damage it just enough. <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing I think. This is what I said to Oran. I said, this, this is really the, um, the challenge with the court of, you know, and, and I mean, as a Gen Xer, everybody's favorite thing to do is to bash on boomers. But the boomer con phenomenon as a broader political phenomenon is the idea that we can write society, make changes. Yes. Um, we, can, we can fix everything, but it won't cost us anything. And it's that last bit, yeah, things can get fixed and get better, but it's going to cost you. And if you don't want to pay the price, they aren't going to get fixed. And that's really right now why our politics feels blocked is because... Um, well, because there's this enormous price for changing that's right. it. And, and nobody um, wants to pay it. Or they don't well, think that they have to pay it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two very different groups. There's a... I would... Whether whether the boomers, such as they are, uh, think they don't have to pay it or just think that it's not worth it for the last 10 years of their life is kind of an academic question. Uh, they still hold most of the wealth and most mm -hmm. of the power in the Western world, and they're enormously invested in not changing it, even if it means putting a dead person in the White House. Oh, right? yeah, and Eugippius has noticed this for, for Germany as well, too. Um, yeah. to, much to his frustration, like he's just banged on that, you know, constantly how um, baby boomers completely run German politics, uh, just yeah. totally. Yeah, and this is going to change in the next 10 years. But um, and one of the things that's interesting is when pe when you hand it over to the next generation, like we've done in Canada, mm -hmm. in the short term, that's often, I mean, you're going to you experience a very un you can experience a very unpleasant change 
Um, but at least the thing is alive again instead of like just choked. Um, like Canadian politics are fundamentally alive in a way American politics are not. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Yes. In in 10 years, we're going to have a very different country in, in Canada, one for better or for worse. Whereas in 10 years, you know, unless the, the hold of the Democrats can somehow be broken. Uh, well, in, in Canada, there's many of the same things happening, but there's a kind of political intentionality about it. Like it's it's an actual functioning program. It isn't well, just... But there's seen... live politics on both sides, right? That uh, is true. In in Canada, there's a there's like genuine movements to restructure sovereignty to put it in the hands of you know one group or another. That's right. Um, the provinces, the workers, whatever. Yeah, you have everything from communist rev- revolutionaries to Quebec separatists to like uh, whatever the hell you want to call the status quo. Yeah. Um, whereas, like. 90% of, of the genuinely powerful people in the United States are still invested in Team Red versus Team Blue. That's right. And it, it was it was interesting and surprising. Um, you know, a, a good example, this was the trucker protest, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you had, like, this is probably in the Western world the closest, maybe other than some of the stuff going on in France, for us, like, actual real like Schmidtian politics breaking out, friend enemy yeah, distinction, right? Way but, way more so than France. Like but, genuine Carl Schmidt politics live on your TV screen, you know? Yeah, and, and what was interesting when you're looking at this, right? You know, the, like the, the 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 fun question that you have in the States, like who's really an American, right? Yeah. In in Canada, when you had a Punjabi trucker, you know what I mean, a Sikh trucker yeah. dancing alongside of um you know, your basic, you know, normal white working class trucker. And the two of them were t- like, and you listen to these guys talk, they were totally aligned there in that moment. And you're looking at it going like, wow, there is, there is an, an existential bond, the kind of thing that Schmidt talks about, a shared existential interest that is threatened that they are willing to defend. And so they understand that there's a bond here um, politically, and, and it's shared and they have a common enemy and because they, they know who their friends are now, they now also know who their enemies. And you're like, wow, this is like really happening like in Canada. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's sort of fascinating. Um, and I like, this is why I'm, you know, infamously on Twitter, a very anti-Trump figure because um, I, I think that, Throwing him in prison and throwing away the key causes politics to break up and to break out in the United States. And there's no like, there are only two. There are only there are only two great hopes in my mind politically. The first is that uh, the American Empire becomes too too incompetent to hold on to its vassals, and and they all get to, to go free, um, which will help the people in Europe. But probably won't help us. Um, no, we are going to remain a vassal state That's for a very long time. <laughs> Proximity is not yeah. for a very long time. Yeah. And the other, the other hope is that po- genuine politics breaks out in America and they become a different kind of, uh, of empire. Well, um, you can see it regionalize, like regionalizing, like the, it, it breaking up um, 
because I mean, from the very beginning, like the the colonies joining together, you know, the United States well, sort of, of a, tips the game that right yeah. from the from the get go, you were creating an empire. Yeah, um, you were you you were uniting thirteen small countries, um, emergent infant countries into one larger empire that was then, you know, cemented in in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean. Politics breaking out inside the empire would be politics breaking out inside empires historically is a very violent and very bloody process. So, you know, you don't want to do it unless there's a very, very good reason to do it. But we're at a point with the way that the West is governed, that there's a like an existential historic reason to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this in for my me, like, mind, I... like, the burning of Notre Dame is this great symbol of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, or, and also, like, the church the burnings of... in Canada are, yeah. are also a symbol of it. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, but, I mean, the, the Canadian churches that burned were somewhat less this historically valuable. To no, Notre Dame is itself a, a, like, yes, that's right. It's it's historical significance and, and as a symbol of the Christian faith and, and all it represented that way, right? Sort of. Um, as an anchor that way. It it also, one of the things I think for people to understand, and this is one of the things that I do and have been developing in my, in my sub stack, is trying to get people to think of, okay, so a lot of the current game of politics that we look at, and this is something that you and I had discussed, in, in, in writing that recent piece, what I realized that, you know, when you talk about, well, elite replacement theory isn't going to happen, that what I was talking about was something you know, within the current system, because if you're, if you have policy wonks replacing policy wonks, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just like switching the channel on the TV, right? It's just different yeah, programming. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the like bring in, bring in Tony Blair or some other group of neoliberal. Yeah, like Ron DeSantis be... is not solving anything. I'm sorry. It just, it, it, it isn't going to do anything. The well, same thing it's... too with the governor of California, whatever his name is. And, well, but it does. The issue is, it doesn't turn back the utopian nature, the utopian exactly. universalizing nature of the system. No. In order to turn the dial back on that, you need genuine disruption. So you need somebody who will go in and like wipe the slate clean to federal departments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and and the thing is, though, too, and and this was something that Alul notes regularly, right? So we have to begin thinking of societies are always organized around great mythic slash religious ideas right well so up until modernity the religious idea was was the the sort of the static architecture of of the christian faith you know um creation fall redemption you're waiting history is gods and you're waiting for christ's return right and within that we just basically do the best we can we're not trying to perfect society we're just we're waiting for christ to return right then you have this break and now the great religious idea is is um progress perfection of well and you, you can see this growing out of like the the um the, po- the post-millennial uh, like people have tried to uh, link this to post post-millennial um well, what's the, the word for it um oh yeah 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 um apocalypse yeah 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 apocalyptic but thinking i i don't think like and, and that that kind of thinking has been like a dominant element of American religious thinking, uh, you know, going back as far as I can read American religious mm-hmm. writing. Um, but like 
there's kind of two paths here that you you can see um you can see like disruption light which is uh politics breaks out in america and you have somebody come to power in more or less the existing uh political uh unit of the united states and it lives on for a while well but he this kind of, you can have somebody who's not going to do anything or you can have somebody who um, turns back the dial on progress by a hundred years by wiping out the, well, the, the, the federal, the federal bureaucracy. Like right? what Elon Musk did to Twitter. It, you just exactly. basically fired 98% of everybody in the government and, and you just sent and, them packing. And you see this in corporate takeovers all the time. So look, it is very common for organizations to become like pre-Musk Twitter. Uh, so very famously, you've had this happen now twice at General Electric, uh, where a large, very old organization, Jack Welch comes in mm-hmm. and like totally guts everything. Just lays waste to it. And, and makes a new company, which mm-hmm. fundamentally has no relationship to the GE that existed before he was None. There. That's right. And, you know, you can like or dislike what what Welsh made, but at, there was a new company there at the end of, of his his term, and then it happened again after the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, Chrysler and, and see, Iacocca. Yeah, Chrysler has had this happen. U.S. Steel has had this happen a mm-hmm. bunch of times. Uh, you could see that kind of thing happen to the United States, and that that's kind of the hope that a Trumpian figure provides. Yes, that was and the hope need... in Trump during yeah. the swamp, right? He would do an Elon Musk and just fire everybody and we would hit the reset button. Yes. And um, obviously Trump himself is not able to do it, nope. but you know, maybe you put Trump in prison and you know, 10 years from now, somebody stands up and decides that, uh, that they're actually going to be a Franco figure and they're going to do that. And you know, that could happen. Um, it could, and that could be a thing, and that's a possibility. There's a lot of possibilities right now, right? And one of the things that I try to get, you know, when I in, in writing my Substack is getting people thinking. So we're in this kind of waiting period, right? So I say, you know, try to think of the the regime in this in this religious nature, right? So it it has its own talos, its own ethos. So if you're looking to be outside the system you have to provide a contrast to the system. So part of the, the thing is to begin thinking about what is well, life, what would life be like if I lived it outside of the system? How would my life be different if I didn't worship the state? How would my life be different if I had a different relationship with technique? How would my life be different if I had a different relationship with people? And is that possible and how do I get there? How do I, because the technical system is inherently alienating. It, it, it's, as, as Heidegger says, it, it inframes us, it encloses, cuts us off from each other, but also cuts us off from the created world. It, it, so how do I then reintegrate myself into human, con, human relationships and a real relationship with the created world around me? So how can I begin to do that, think like that? And it might be that some of these incubators become the hot spots where people then say enough is enough, right? Or maybe not, or, or you just simply yeah. prepared to live a different way. I, I mean, there's at that level, um, you know, at the level of your own life, you've got executive power. 
hopefully at the level of your family's life, you've got executive power. Well, and, and your so, church community and, and your neighborhood, that there are yeah. levels that these things can be done in preparation for the big one that's going to happen. Well, even not, not so much in, not necessarily in preparation, but because you want to live better, right? That's right. So the, the pro the problem we're discussing here is the universalization, the universalizing and utopian nature of techness has reached a, a point where the, there's negative returns on the iterations. That's exactly. And so you, you might, want to so you, you could take executive action to restore uh to restore a different kind of life at the level at which you're able to ex execute executive power and mo obviously nobody on this call has the, the ability to do that at the national level but no. there are there are levels at which you you probably have that authority yeah like your local church might be a place you know you might yeah there, there's there's groups you know what i mean um you're maybe at the uh, at the municipal level, you know, at the township or whatever, there's there's an opportunity, especially if you're more rural and, and smaller, to actually do some of these things. But then the next step is how do you create the disruptions necessary to? Well, yeah. So there's there's layers to this. So when we're when we're speaking on this platform mm -hmm. there's a couple of things we're doing first we're we're advising people how to live and in advising yes. people how to live we're talking about like what can you do what executive action can you take in your your own the sphere that you're bounded in it's almost uh, pastoral that's right that and, and that that's one element and the other element of what we're doing is we're talking about politics and history and if we're talking about politics and history um, we're talking about what to expect in, in uh, the foreseeable future. And in that sense, I think the right has a, a historical obligation to set forward a path. Like, s setting forward Caesarism is a... That's the example of, okay, of wipe the slate clean inside mm -hmm. the, the existing bureaucracies there's two other ways forward that i think the right needs to sort of aesthetically um needs to express the the, the first of these is the break up the empire solution mm -hmm. um, and this is the the world in which the united states politics does not break out in the u.s government or it does and it's suppressed mm -hmm. and you have the technical system go on for some period of time then all politics is anti-imperial politics. Yes. So if if you're in a place like South Africa, if you're in a place like Spain, if you're in a place like Canada, all mm -hmm. politics is about resisting the empire and keeping the empire out. Yes. Right. And stopping the empire from destroying the thing that you love. It, it's similar to what Calvin talks about in the Institutes, where the lower magistrate has an obligation when the higher magistrate is oppressive to rebel against the higher magistrate for the good of his people. And that's right. But, and, and even at like a, a, a larger level, you, you have to realize that if the U S empire limps on in this fashion much longer, they're going to reach a, a stage where they're no longer able to control their vassal states. Well, right? and it, it's like a, a good question might be this, right? So, we're, we're running into an energy crunch, right? 
it's it's one of these things. At what point does Canada say um, oil is a is a um, it's a finite resource. We have lots of it. We're just going to keep it for ourselves because this is good for our people. Sorry. Bye. Right. And that's that's a provocative action. Right. And then the Americans would have a choice to make, which would be, well, do we invade Canada and, and secure the oil or or not? Right. And does Canada have a plan to repel them? <laughs> you know, these. Well, but that would be one of these kind of actions. It's, 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 but again, it's sort of a, like anti-imperial politics is situationally like yes. you, we, we discussed this at the outset you, the future of where canada is not an imperial state well is that's very, exactly very it. it's just away. not happening it isn't going to happen but but if you're south africa the future where you're not an imperial state is basically right now yes right and if you, there's like dozens of these places around the world that foreseeably in the next 10 years could become instead of vassal states something else and so the that's the that's kind of area number two if you're not going to have a caesar to revitalize the the american empire the next layer down is okay anti-imperial politics if the empire is going to be evil then it, it would be best if the empire sheds as as much of its power as as po- as it possibly can Yes. The, the, the other option, one of the other options that I would see would be from an active point of view would be kind of the Taliban option is to, um, is, is making yourself ungovernable, right? And so this would yeah. be the, the internal civil war type option, right? Where the empire may be stronger than you are, but you can basically make yourself ungovernable. Yeah. So this is, this is, path number three right that's right so the there's anti-imperial politics as kind of path number two and then there's this kind of parallel insulate yourself from the empire somehow and then make yourself ungovernable from the from the empire well but uh, ungovernable means that you're insulated from their power that's right that's what it from their rewards from their rewards and punishments that's right yes and so this is the option that I don't think the right has really explored in discourse at all. No. Uh, anti-imperial politics, there are people doing that. Um, Caesarism, there are people who have talked about that. Though I think it would be better if it was talked about, you know, um, the Musk Twitter thing is a great example of, of how Caesarism w- could be done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, there's drawbacks and, and positives to that. But I think on balance, everyone would agree that getting rid of 99% of all employees of the, the U.S. federal government would be a net positive for the world. But your Social Security check wouldn't show up on time. Well, you know... <laughs> <laughs> this is actually, you know? that is actually an example that Alul uses is that you know your social you know this the, the functional equivalent the French equivalent of your social security check will not show up on time. Well, like, that's right. But on the other hand, your grandchild won't have his dick chopped off. So <laughs> yeah. you know which way modern man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's the right way to frame to frame that. Like the em- the empire's got this crappy reward that it can still give you. But on the other hand, you have to be evil. And, you know, uh, there's a time for choosing. Um. Yes. And, and the, the, 
the the empire is really built and predicated upon its ability to provide rewards, which is one of the, you know, it's organizing principles of using technique and control to generate money, right? And that's yeah, a but... system-wide. And so as soon as they can no longer do that, um, as soon as, you know, that's when things will begin to get real. Right, but the the mistake that is made the US empire is the richest empire that has ever existed. Yes. They're running through capital relatively quickly, but there's a long way from oh, the yeah. way that the average American lives to a, a state where, you know, people start attempting the IRA solution, right? Yeah. Um, or the Taliban solution. Yeah, it, it's just, it's a very, very long way. Uh, yeah, we are, not, about we are this, not close to that. We've talked about this in the Canadian context. Like, we're just at a tipping point now in this country where uh, the ability to take talented young men from their local community and promise them rewards in places like Toronto or New York is starting to be like the promise is starting to seem a little bit hollow. Now. Well, and they they know it, right? Because now you've been made to visibly compete against people from everywhere, right? You, you've you know you've got a, like the 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 labor pool and the competition well, pool has amped up. But that that the competition pool really isn't the problem. The problem is the success condition, right? Their problem, the reason they're having more and more trouble getting because you're not worried about whether some midwit buys in you're worried about whether the next uh jeff bezos buys in uh or whether he like stays in rural i don't know where bezos is, was born but uh, if he stays in like rural montana and does something awesome there instead right you want him to buy into your system and and be part of the empire and the way you do that is by promising him all these awesome rewards if he ups and leaves his life and, and becomes part of the empire. The problem is all the people who are like visible symbols of the empire all have terrible lives. Um, and so high agency young men are less and less attracted to it. So like, yeah, Jeff Bezos gets to be the richest man in the world, but he has to write a $20 billion check to his ex-wife um, because I don't know, she decided she was tired of him or something. Well, what was like, interesting to go back to like the trucker dispute is, is seeing that firsthand is that what you saw there, especially for guys who are stuck in BS jobs, you know, you know, pushing paper or doing spreadsheets yeah. is that here you had a group of people who looked competent, organized, um, committed, and relatively happy with, with who they are. Yeah, well, the, and that's the that's the other thing that the regime can no longer promise. Uh, they can no longer promise that you get to be proud of who you are, especially if you're a white man, right? Yeah, and and so you had here all of these guys, you know, as truckers there, and it it opened a window in a sense to a kind of life like, oh yeah, like everything used to be kind of like that, where people were competent and happy and organized and what went wrong well but this is what i'm getting at we have to open that window in our in our 
disparate communities, right? Um, Redeemer has to be that window, right? Into yes. a world that's, that's, that's different. That's correct. Uh, right. For, for those who don't know, Redeemer is like, um, a Christian uh, liberal rights university. It's a Christian university in Southern Ontario that is highly associated with a particular community. Um, yes. And so the, the point we're trying to get at is um, the regime's ability to offer rewards to young men, uh, especially white young men, is really declining because of, uh, well, <laughs> for a whole variety of reasons. They're well documented. Yes. Um, and so we're just kind of at a tipping point where there's a, a larger fraction of, of men that you can convince and say, you know, maybe you don't have to join the evil empire. Maybe it would be better for you not to do that. Well, um, and yeah. And, and here's the thing, like, you know, you can say to them, you know what, you might have a comfortable, like, yeah, okay. You're not going to make as much as you would on wall street or Bay street. Right. And, yeah. um, but, but maybe but, you get to have a wife and children. Well, that's it. And, and, and you're going to be part they of would a, like Maybe they'd like respect you instead of hate you. Yeah, and and see, this is one of the things that the the public private split uh, that's been foisted on us for churches and so forth is so devastating, right? Oh my you goodness! Know, yeah. The 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 idea that you know when you think of churches like oh it's about getting saved or it's like the pietist thing about meeting God, right? But if you're yeah. looking at building a well-rounded community, a parallel polity, like say being in the world, but not of the world, like a community of Christ, well, what do you need to form a full community? Well, you need families. Okay. But in order to form families, you need jobs. And in order to have jobs, you need businesses, right? And so all of a sudden you can begin to see putting together all of these pieces where Christians well, can found needs, businesses, give people a place to work. Need. What you first and foremost need is you need your high quality young men not to leave. That's right. And you've got to give go. them a reason not to leave, that there's opportunity. Yes. The opportunities are here. They may not be a Bay Street or Wall Street opportunity. They not, that might not be an Ottawa or a DC opportunity, but they are a real opportunity. You will be able to build a wife. You will have a house. You'll have a wife. You'll have kids and you will have a stable relationship in your community. And, yeah, and, and your life is actually going to be better here. Then it is going to like it. You should just be running like the the squalidness of progressive life in the big cities on repeat reel all day long. <laughs> yeah, and and you could say, and listen, we can do it here um, in a parallel community that maybe it's at the edge of the suburbs. It's an exurb, or you know, yeah. or the, the latest thing that I am seventeen seventy six thing about you know picking up land in urban Detroit. Maybe we can just go in and take a whole bunch of urban land off of Detroit. Um, from them and just um, colonize Detroit, you know, just crazy ideas this way. But the yeah. idea is, is that you can then, you're giving an existential reward of saying, not only are you going to be able to form a family and have a decent life, but you're going to be part existentially of, of this, this great story. You're going right? to build something. Yeah. You know, your be... grandchildren are going to be talking about how you built this community. Well, like my favorite Charlie Brown cartoon of all time is the Thanksgiving special where they talk about the pilgrims crossing the, the, the Atlantic yes. fleeing persecution. Like there's this story that Americans used to tell themselves that, I mean, Americans don't even remember that they told themselves this story uh, about 
who they were as a people and the contribution to that that they could have to this like what they com- what what was kind of subtextually compared to a journey to the promised land right yes um, we can we can we can carve a land out for ourselves and be our own lords in a sense yes. like we don't have to we don't have to live under the thumb of some who's telling us to worship in a way that we don't want to worship. And so we can go here, we can worship God the way that we want to, we can build something and we can govern ourselves. Yes. And we can tell that story all over again. Uh, we I can. Mean, and that's what we, yes, that's exactly it. Black horse that we, we, and that's really the reward that we have to sell to be, that you are going to build something. And again, the reason why I keep saying that, well, you've got, it, you've got three pieces of propaganda. You've got, by the way, uh, these people who are promising you rewards to betray your community and join the empire, they're lying to you because the life they're offering you is disgusting. So that's, yeah, that's, element, that's element one of your propaganda. Yeah. Um, you enough. have to sell your soul for a diminishing asset, a job that's not going to be worth what you think it's going to be worth. Uh, and then element two of your propaganda is, by the way, look at the kind of family that you could have uh, mm-hmm. if you didn't leave. Like you could have like real male friends. Male friends aren't part of progressive world. (laughs) Yeah. And, and your, your, your real male friends, you could do things together, like, you know, build houses for people in the community. Gather together. You you could do like, you could participate in the power process. Let's put it that way. That's right. Yeah. When, when old, when old widow so-and-so needs a new roof, you just band together and she's got a new roof. Well, yeah, and your your children could look up to you, and your wife could respect you, and you could not Crazy. have a divorce rate of sixty percent, and like y- you could live that life. And then part number three of the, of the propaganda that you can present is you can present this long, this unified story going back hundreds of years to this is the project of your great great grandfathers, and it will be the project of your great great grandsons. Well, and and even more so, like like even deeper, like, um, and again, we talked about the religious nature of the, of the regime. You can say, and this is why I say, but really, where's the thing that can potentially offers that kind of religious core, which is the Christian faith. So you have to say, we have this story now. Ours is actually the older story. We go all the way back to creation, at least to Christ, we can say, you know, and this is, you know, because this is what Christ did, right? He, gathered his disciples together and taught them how to found a community. And so we're basically just going to do what Christ did and we're just going to hit a reset button and we're going to build a holistic community that um, that provides for the full rounded needs of its people. Um, And to this end, I think the propaganda piece that needs to be hit over and over again are these moments in Western history uh, where these, these founding moments so, I mean, I, I've done a number of threads looking at images from the crowning of Charlemagne to, like, draw back on Western history. When was the last time a new king was crowned in a new place? Mm-hmm. Um, and what would it take to re-enchant the world to make you believe that you could be, you could found a new ethnos? Well, uh, you know, this. you look at the beginning of the West, right? You know, we talk about yeah. pre-moderns. You know, we think pre-modern, and we think like mud huts, right? Okay, no, right at but... right at the cultural beginning of the West, right around the year one thousand. 
Um, and shortly thereafter, what were they building? They were building 100-foot-high um, cathedrals out of stone using hand tools. Yes. Right? And they were, and, and you're they thinking were taking, like, like, six lifetimes to do them. Yeah, and you're, like, commitment, like, I mean, this, so you'd have this, like, small village, and this church would tower over everything, right? Well, that's a, yeah. a that's a, you know, this is a society that is energetic. It's filled with faith. There's just, there's a passion there, right? So, I mean, maybe we don't build cathedrals, but there's, there is something else that we can then build. We can have that, this, and it can be tied into our Christian faith, and it can be apart from and separate from the regime. Okay. And it's, and it's logic. Okay, so we're we're almost done, but we have uh, a friend of the show who wants to speak. Lauren Hine, how are you doing? I think his mic oh, is off. <laughs> of course he is. Yeah, there, we <laughs> there we go. Uh, I'd correct you. The pronunciation is uh, Laurentian. Uh, Laurentian, oh, Laurentian elite. Uh, yes, there we go. The hated Laurentian the hated elite. Laurentian elite. Do, want, do we yeah. need to ban you from the show here? <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> you could, but I'd fan, I'd find a way to ban you back. So that's that's how we work there you here. Go. Oh yeah, mutual <laughs> selfish yeah, mutual self-assured destruction, right. right? That's right. Yeah. That's what we're about. <laughs> go ahead, sorry. I'd just like to introduce some terminology and that um something that I've heard before in these terms is Two things is the creation of public good. So in order to cre create obedience, you would in turn have to create uh, an idea of public good, that you are providing public good. And that is something that we see um, a failure of amongst the regime. The, yeah. the regime is no longer able to provide public good. And that may be... Uh, well, I, I actually think that one step before that, to create a public good uh, or a sense of public good, you have to create a sense of public, right? Which is why I go back to these founding moments in like the early, basically between 800 and, and 1200 AD, where you, you see the founding of peoples and nations all over the West. Um, the so like in, in Canada, outside of Quebec, uh, like, what people do you belong to if you live in southern Ontario? Well, no comment. Yeah, <laughs> no comment. It's probably no comment days. because nobody knows, right? <laughs> well, and but at the same time, like Laurentian is getting at a point, though. If you look at it differently, because in in the in the in the PMC, you know, striver world, everybody's talking about leadership all the time. But really, the the essence of the charismatic leader, the king figure is his ability, and this was, you know, we talked about this before invested, yeah. was the ability within himself to make decisions that then benefited those who sustained his power. Yeah, but what what you have to, a king can only be crowned by a community that's no, able that's to right. recognize That's exactly it, right? Right. So, yeah. like, we're just, just peeking into the, the era where this can be done. So you might imagine... That if if there's another regime crisis like COVID in Canada, um, COVID in Canada saw the first kings crowned in in Canada in the longest time, where you saw genuine leaders emerge that were attached to people. Mm -hmm. So who who is Tim Stevens, right? Before COVID, Tim Stevens is the pastor of some random church in in Calgary. 
mm-hmm. after COVID, Tim Stevens is uh, the leader of a people, and he doesn't even really understand it. No, that's right. And these are the moments that we're just at the edge of, of, of coming into where people will find a sense of themselves and they'll appoint their own leaders and they'll attach themselves to them spiritually. Um, this is possible for the first time, you know, maybe the last time this was done in the West is, uh, when, um, uh, what's his name? The, the famous Quebec nationalist, um, uh, Rene Levesque um, took the Quebecois people um, and made them made them something again uh, after they kind of got a sense for themselves during the draft riots during World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we're talking about the kind of thing that just hasn't happened very often uh, in the West in a very very long time. No. Now, you, you said that you had a couple other points, Laurentian. Uh, one I'd mention is uh, obedience. So public good, when you create public good, you create, um, you're looking to create obedience. And that is something that's very foreign, I think, to um, today's culture and today's people. Mm-hmm. So to our, our public isn't used to obedience um not to god not to anything however they find themselves being uh lured into the state and the state creates this obedience through the projection of public good which well, is I mean, deteriorating they're, they're also like the the state has figured out that if you if your command toward quote public good is to tell everyone do as that will, uh, wilt, then you can create this, a sense of obedience relatively easily. It's why it's such an uphill battle for them to do, to, it's why they can't call on anyone to sacrifice anymore. Right? Very true. The only other point I'd add is um, Christopher Dawson's book that I'm reading. Um, Religion and the rise of Western culture. It, there's, there's a point, and it's after the fall of the Roman Empire, and it, uh, where, uh, you know, there was monks that were basically dispersed throughout uh, the remaining empire, and and really, what it started with, what really what did the public good started with was. Uh, a monk tilling a garden next to a forest. So the monk would um, would be working the ground and bring people together. And eventually, in fifty years, they'd have uh, a, mo- a modest monastery of some kind. So I, it, 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 two things. It, it's it's happened before. Then mm-hmm. it will happen again, and and you know, we have the capacity within ourselves and with God's guidance in order to get ourselves out of it again. So that's that's the positive, but it, it's a very simple act of of 
tending a garden is maybe where it could start. Yeah, there. I was just looking now to while I was listening to you through some of the notifications and replies on the thread, and there was um, uh, someone named Barend asked a question on you know what about the Amish, right? And and you know what could we learn from them? Now, there's the biggest thing that you can learn from the Amish. And especially the better ones, is the intentionality of the relationship to technique. But the one thing that we should pay attention to with the Amish, especially is the, the nonviolence of the Amish, in that the Amish community exists at the sufferance of the regime. So the Amish yeah. are allowed to do their thing because they're not a threat, right? And so you have to remember that that the option to be nonviolent if you are successful, and the Amish will have reached this point eventually where they're a threat, and then they will discover that this, you know, that they no longer have the, the sufferance of the state and they will yeah. be crushed, right? Yeah, and so I mean, you have to be prepared for that. But, I mean, the Amish have been there before, right? If That's you go true. back, If you go back to, like, Canada during the World Wars where the Amish attempted to become conscientious objectors, uh, you know, they fully understand that uh, part of the choices that they have made means that they'll be beaten up by the state whenever the state comes into conflict with. That's exactly uh, yeah. finds them object uh, finds them objectionable. So that kind of separation, um, you know, it, it has been possible because Western states have broadly, like the. The Amish basically only exist in Canada and the United States. They don't exist anywhere else. And they exist in Canada and the United States because uh, the better judgment of those governments over the last 300 years has said, leave these people alone and buy, you know, buy their food and, and ignore them otherwise, because it's better to live with men than kill them. Well, in the history of Western governments, there's, there's a lot of times where the idea of it's better to live with men, men than kill them kind of breaks down. Well, uh, yeah. And, and the thing that has to be remembered is that Amish nonviolence depends upon the violence of the, like the American state or the Canadian state. And, and yeah, we have yeah. to understand that even if, even, if it's, even if you don't have a boot to your neck, this is one thing that Alul noted, that a lot of our economic relationships, things like propaganda, are inherently violent. They just don't draw blood. Right. Yeah. And so the, the Amish exist in nonviolence because of the violence of the American state. Right. And, and that's something that I think that a lot of time is elided. And so there there is a high road. This is something that he made that actually Alul made very explicit in his book on violence that um, and, and use the Amish as an example, that they really exist. And so this, this idea of the Amish option, that we can kind of have this peaceable country sort of existence without technology, is fine as long as you are willing to accept um, the, the power of the regime over you and, and the violence of the regime yeah. that, 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 that creates and no. allows you to have this space. Well, and not on the violence of the regime that will eventually be directed at you when the regime breaks down too far. That's exactly it, right? Because you're right. prosperous and they will look to loot you um, because you're an easy target. Yeah, eventually. 
and it, it's right. just a question of of how far how far things get and what that's what i was getting at and discussing like canada and the united states have been enormously profit uh, prosperous nations for a very long time and so they've been able to completely ignore these people um but there will come a day when that's no longer so when they'll stop ignoring them they'll you know uh, do all kinds of nasty things to these people uh you know um yeah, I mean it's unfortunate, problems. and and it's you know no one likes to think of these these alternatives, right? But you know the Amish question is a good one because you know um, this is one thing about Alul is you know he's a Calvinist, and Calvinists tend to be sort of that um, unsuperstitious kind of cold reason sort of thing, bloodless. Yeah, the, the kind of this, the the, the um, as I talked about with Oren, it, it takes technocrats to instantiate a revolution that you know unfortunately many of those those revolutionaries were bloodless calvinists um and so you 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 have to to realize that that the amish option um yes we have to still reconsider our relationship to technology but if you want to be serious about dealing with the state you have to recognize that unless you choose martyrdom, and that's a valid path for a Christian. Um, that you are going to have to come to grips with with violence. All states, in in a world of, well, of sin and evil, all states but, are founded on violence and maintained well, by violence. But bottom line, like Romans Romans thirteen, anyone who grabs sovereignty has an obligation to have violence. a positive relationship with violence. That's right, because uh, you're you're you are instruct. God puts you there as a king to defend the people and to punish wrongdoers. And that yeah, is, right. in a sinful world, that is the lesser of two evils. It doesn't make it any less evil, and God will still hold yeah. you accountable for your actions, but that's the task that you have been given. And so you embrace yeah, it. I, and b- bottom line, like you can have whatever moral judgment you want to have, but you have a direct, you have a clear directed directive in revealed scripture, and you have yeah. enormous history. That's so, right. you know, whatever you want to think about it, that that's what it is. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, so, and and this is the the one thing that, in a sense, the the Amish community, you have to. It, well, they they attempted to reckon with this way back, like seven hundred years ago, when they were yeah. driven out of Europe through this like incredibly bloody process, mm-hmm. um, and then they've you know, been fortunate not to have to deal with it since. That's but right. The days are coming. Uh, they are. Because the, the empire in which they live is decaying, and uh, you just have to talk to a white South African to find out what happens when a state collapses. Yeah, or what is it, Rhodesia? Yeah. Uh, we, well, we've, seen, we've seen this play before. When I was a kid, my, my church, my pastor was a, a former South African, and there were three families there who were white Rhodesians who, uh, you know, the, the land that their family had traditionally owned uh, certainly no longer belonged to them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You leave in the middle of the night and you pack in the car and you just go. And, yeah. And you figure out the rest later when you get there. Yeah. So, you know, these things happen. Um, they do. All right. Well, it's it's pretty late. Is there anything else we want to touch on before we? we I, I think this is good. I mean, there'll be other chances to chat, and like you say, it's like eleven thirty already. And um, except for except for Big Tuna, who's there on the West Coast, so it's like eight o'clock for you. Um, so you get to enjoy the rest of your evening, sir, after listening to us. So, um, 
but yeah. Um, anyways, we'll call it. Thank you all for showing up, for listening and being patient. And um, it was really good to chat with you, Black Horse. And I, I look forward to doing this again. Yeah. Enjoy your night. Yeah, you too. Yeah, bye-bye. Yeah.